Well, I wore yellow today because I was feeling like spring. And then I walked out and it was 20 degrees. And I was like, Mark, you're such a trickster, aren't you? But I know in a few weeks it will actually feel like spring. Dear Jesus, please. Okay. Well, today uh, we're going to start with the season of Lent. And you can go ahead and turn there if you want to, to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be walking with Jesus through some challenges today. But before, I want to tell you a little story. Now, a young couple, they were uh, kind of struggling to make, make ends meet. They had just bought their first house, and things were pretty tight financially, okay? And so they went out for the day. They didn't have any money, but they said, we're just going to do some window shopping. You know, what can that hurt? We'll just do some window shopping, right? So they went into the store. We're looking around, and the husband went off to the man section, the men's department, and the woman went off to the ladies' department, and they kind of meandered around. And about an hour, they met back together, and the husband's jaw dropped because his wife was carrying this big shopping bag and had a receipt for a $200 dress. And he said, what are you thinking? You know, we can't afford this right now. And the wife, she just looked like equally shocked. She said, I know. I just, I saw this dress on the rack and I just thought, I'll just try it on. But it was like, as soon as I put it on, I heard the devil himself whispering in my ear saying, oh, that looks so fabulous. You should buy it. And the husband just rolled his eyes. He's like, well, you should have done what I do when I'm tempted. I just say, Satan, get behind me. And the wife responded, I did just that. And when you know, he said, it looks fabulous from back here too. <laughs> and then they went to marriage counseling. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh, temptation. That unavoidable challenge of being human. We do not outgrow temptation as we age. Rather, temptation grows up right along with us, right? I am no longer tempted to smart off to my mom like I did when I was 10. But I am certainly tempted to reply snarkily to my husband when I feel irritable or when, bless his heart, he says something that irks me, right? I am no longer tempted to buy the most popular, more expensive, like jeans or shoes to match all my friends. But I am tempted to portray an image of myself free of error and struggle. And, oh, doesn't she make it look easy breezy, right? And while it may look different than it once has, temptation comes to us no matter how old we are, how mature we are, how educated or wise. And at the heart of our temptations, whether we're 10 or 34 or 75, lie the same core issues. We are tempted to excess we are tempted to cut corners. We are tempted to infidelity. We are tempted to self-promotion, to deny others the rights that we ourselves enjoy. And why? Just because we just really love cake? Or because we just really want to save some time so we cut corners? Or because we really just don't love our wife and so infidelity seems like a logical option? Is that really about a new job title or more pay? Is that really it? You see, at the heart of these temptations lie far more significant questions and fears and insecurities. We lack or we fear a lack of control. And so we hustle to secure our future with financial gain. We secretly wonder, am I truly lovable? And so perhaps this new shiny wife or coworker or whatever might make me really feel loved finally. We fear our own mortality, and so we frantically clutch at experiences and possessions and indulgences and endless entertainment because that's what life's about. Live it to the fullest, right? Well, today, this first Sunday of Lent, 
we're going to return to that infamous story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And just like our temptations really aren't about cake or sex or money, Jesus' temptations are about a whole lot more than bread or kingdoms or flashy miracles. And as Jesus is the truly human one, he faced the same questions that we ourselves face. And he found a way through to the other side, a way that is available to us as we face ordinary, everyday temptations in this Idaho kind of life. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Luke 4, where we're going to find our story today. Jesus has just been baptized by John in the river. In fact, in, in 321 through 22, it says, Now when all these people had been baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the bodily form of a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And so Jesus has been filled with the Holy Spirit. His identity as the beloved son of God, God's precious son has been affirmed. And so with this holy empowerment and this reminder tucked in his heart, he follows the spirits leading out into the wilderness. Now it seems like a strange turn of events. You wouldn't you think that the moment right after like a really significant spiritual encounter with God, like that would be the ideal time to start one's ministry, right? Of healing and teaching. Like, woo, we just got a word from heaven out to do some healing, right? But remember, Jesus is the son of God and the son of man, the truly human one. And so he follows this pattern we see in scripture of God inviting his people, particularly some of his leaders and his chosen ones, out into the wilderness, to do some work, right? He invites Hagar and Moses. He invites the people of Israel and Elijah the prophet. It is in the wilderness where all the distractions are stripped away. There's not even a Wi-Fi signal, okay? Where God reveals God's self most clearly, where spiritual formation occurs, where transformation unfolds. And so this wilderness is this place where all you need is nothing. And yet it is the one thing we often don't have. Now, Jesus obediently enters into this barren space to be formed and shaped for the work ahead and to identify with us and with our human condition and to find his father faithful. So let's read verse one through four. We're going to reach each each temptation one at a time. Verse one, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Now, at first, it seems so obvious. Like Jesus is starving and Satan conjures up these images of steamy, hot bread, fresh from the oven. And I got to tell you, I feel for Jesus here because I love bread. I love bread. In all shapes and sizes, I love bread. When we lived abroad, uh, we had to go to separate stores for like everything, like the cheese store and the bread store and the meat store and all that stuff. And um, without a doubt, my favorite place to go was the Pani Ficho, okay? And you would walk in, and even if you weren't hungry before you walked in, like that wave of bready aroma hit your face. You're like, oh, I'm now starving to death. And I need all of the breads, all of the breads. We are missing out in America because we do not have these places right now, right? Okay. So anyway, I'm getting sidetracked because I just love bread so much. So I would get bread for dinner, and then I would maybe like, ooh, I could have one of those now. They're so delightful, right? But anyway, this first temptation, as obvious as it seems, like Jesus is obviously starving. 
it's not really about bread. You see, this first temptation that Jesus faces concerns his identity. Look at your scripture. What does it say? The first thing out of Satan's mouth is, if you really are the son of God, if you are really the son of God, Jesus has literally just been reminded from heaven of his identity as God's son. And yet Satan pokes like right there in that spot. God's beloved? You sure? Then why are you suffering? Is it holy to be hungry? If God truly loved you, if you were really his son, he would never allow you to endure such pain. That identity must be false, so go ahead and build your own. Prove yourself. He pokes right there in that identity spot. And so Jesus, he responds with scripture. One does not live by bread alone. But it's not just some random verse that Jesus picked out of the concordance because it matched, it said bread, okay? In this moment of great temptation, when Jesus is tempted to doubt his identity as God's son and God's love for him, Jesus calls to mind the story of Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 8. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is preaching to the people. They've just finished this long journey through the wilderness where God has done amazing things. And he says to them, he reminds them as they approach the promised land, he says, remember the long way, understatement, it was 40 years, that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order that you, to, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, it's such a strange story, isn't it? The people of God are hungry in the wilderness, and they're crying out and shaking their fists, and God provides them with what? manna the what is it bread that just appears from heaven and it fills their bellies but it does far more than that doesn't it it wasn't just belly food it was soul food it reminded these frightened people who they were you are God's children God and as God's children God will provide for you if only you will trust his provision it was less about the food, though they desperately needed it, and more about the question facing Jesus, who are we? And the answer is we are God's children, God's covenant people. And so every morning as they would go out and they'd walk outside and they'd fill their baskets with that weird heaven bread, their souls were nourished by God's persistent provision. And so too, Jesus is forced to ask, who am I? I am. I'm God's beloved son. I trust his provision for me. I trust his heart for me that though I am suffering at the moment, 40 days is a long time to go without food. God sees me and I am his. I will not give into the temptation to make a way for myself. I find myself in God's story of salvation and I entrust myself into God's care. And so too, we are tempted. How do we answer the question, who am I? When we are tempted to make a way for ourselves as we see fit, when we are tempted to hustle our way to security, when we are tempted to give into fear. See, Jesus called to mind the story of God's saving action and God's story of salvation, and he found his place in it. And he stood on the history of God's faithfulness and covenantal promises to save, and he was able to resist. And so too we must claim the story. We 
are a part of God's story of salvation. We are not orphans. We are the beloved children of God. And so even when it hurts and even when we suffer and even when we don't know why, we cling with this white-knuckled grip to our identity as God's children, as co-heirs with Christ. Standing on the foundation of our belovedness, we can look the enemy in the face and say, keep your bread, Satan. I am nourished by the hand of God himself. So who am I? I am the beloved. Let's continue to read temptation number two, verse five. Now the devil then led him and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you, I will give their glory and all this authority for it has been given over to me and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So what's the temptation here? Is it really kingdoms? Like really just Jesus wants to be in charge of everything? What is the actual temptation that is going on here that Satan is kind of giving him this bird's eye view? Jesus once again goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, except it's this time Moses is talking to Israel right before they enter the promised land. He says, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with fine large cities that you did not build, houses filled with all sorts of good things that you did not fill, hewn cisterns that you did not hew, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you have eaten all of your fill, take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. The Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name alone you shall swear. Now how tempting for Israel. Once they are settled in the promised land and they look outside the house they're living in that they didn't build and they're looking out at a flourishing garden that they did not plant and they're thinking, well, my belly is filled and I sleep at peace at night because my enemies have been dealt with. How tempting to think, look at what my own hands have wrought. They have moved from asking, who am I to what am I doing? And the question is, I'm doing my own thing. I am in control. I am the source. I have the power. I am self-sufficient. Look what my hands have wrought. Now Jesus looks out across the kingdoms of this world, kingdoms that you know he loves and he surely wants to save, and he once again calls to mind the story of God's saving action and of God's story in which he plays a part, and he says, now what am I doing? I know I'm the beloved of God. Now what am I doing? My will or the will of my Father? You see, the temptation calls him to power and to control and to direct according to his timeline instead of to obey. Now, I imagine Jesus closing his eyes and reminding himself, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Worship and serve him alone. And in locating himself in the story of God once again and in rooting himself in God's call to obedience, Jesus rejects that siren call to power and control. Now, so too, we are tempted. How do we answer the question? What am I doing? And on occasion, we answer my own thing. See, our culture worships control and autonomy and power, setting the agenda and steering one ship because that's the way to success. But our call is not to success. Mother Teresa once said, we were not created 
to be successful, but to be obedient. That is the only measure that counts. And again, we claim the story of God and our place in it. God is the one who is working out redemption for creation. And we, we're a part of that, aren't we? We are participants in this new creation life. We are obedient servants. And so we reject the lie of the enemy that would tell us, you're the source. You are the power. You are in charge and you set the agenda. All this rides on you. We reject that. We reject the invitation to usurp power and control, to claim kingdoms regardless of how good we believe our intentions to be because God is king, not me. Power and success and autonomy are of no value in the kingdom economy. Obedience is the currency of heaven. So Satan, keep your kingdoms. Ultimately, they aren't even yours to give. What am I doing? God's will, not mine. We come to the final temptation in verse 9. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you're the son of God, then throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Now, if last uh, uh, temptation asks, what am I doing? The last temptation asks, how am I doing it? You see, Satan pokes and prods once again into that if you are God's son thing. But this time he calls on Jesus to demand proof of God's love in a very spectacular way. If God really loves you, Jesus, this shouldn't be so hard. If God loves you, Jesus, he'll deliver you. If God loves you, legions of angels will flock in, lest you scratch one of your precious little toes. If God loves you, if you're really his child, bad things won't happen. If God really is truly on your side, nothing will hurt you. No harm will come near your tent, right? I have wanted to put God to this specific test. Haven't you? God, if you love me, then fill in the blank. Wouldn't be happening. Now, Satan tempts Jesus with the same. But once again, things aren't as simple as they appear. Satan doesn't really think Jesus is going to go Superman it off the temple. Okay? He is inviting, what he's inviting Jesus to is a path that is free of suffering. To a cross-free salvation. Satan is saying, if God really loves you, then surely not a cross. If God really loves you, surely not a tomb. One final time, Jesus' mind goes back to to the story of Israel. This time to Exodus, he says, do not put the Lord your God to a test as you tested him at Massa. So the people of God once again were in the wilderness, thirsty this time instead of hungry. And they tested God and they raised their fist in anger against God. And they cried out against Moses and asked, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us? It's not a new question. 
Because when we suffer, when the road is hard, when deliverance does not come, how and when we expect it, we cry out, is the Lord even among us? Because surely God's presence is incompatible with this kind of suffering. Surely God must be absent. Well, Satan invites Jesus into this lie. Surely it's not God's will that you would suffer and actually die. Surely, as God's beloved, you're exempt, right? Surely God's way is shiny and spectacular, victory to victory, ever ascending into glory. But Jesus knows better. God is present. God will save. God is at work. Sometimes... God delivers us from bondage with flaming hail from heaven. And sometimes God suffers alongside us as we persist in obedience, even when it hurts and it's hard. Jesus' temptation is to a deathless resurrection. Who am I? The beloved. What am I to be doing? God's will. How am I to be doing it? Uh, Is there an easy option? Like a bloodless way, maybe a cross-free salvation? No. You see, in Matthew, remember when when Judas and the guards came into the garden and Peter wakes up all like groggy, kind of like us this morning, and he whips out his sword because he's like, there's no suffering on my watch. And he swings the sword and tries to take that guy's head off and only gets an ear. And Jesus says, no. Don't you think that if I asked, God would send legions of angels to protect me? But no, I am doing God's will, God's way. The slow, patient, painful at times road of obedience that trusts that God is among us, truly among us. And so too, we are tempted. We are tempted to do God's will, but Maybe our way, if possible, the painless way, the way free of suffering, because that's how we know God is among us, right? It's easy. It feels good, right? If only. Ease is not to be equated with faithfulness, and hardship is not to be equated with God's absence. God is among us sometimes delivering with a mighty hand, and sometimes he comes alongside us, co-suffering with us, curls up next to us in our fear and our hurt. But regardless of how he responds, we know this, he is with us. And our call is to lean into that promise and persist in doing God's will, God's way. Rejecting power and rejecting empty status and image and rejecting easy victory and rejecting a deathless resurrection. Because once again, we claim our place in the story of God's salvation. We are on the road with Jesus, sharing with him in his death in order that we might share fully in his resurrection, both now and forever. So Satan, keep your dramatic God tests. God is among us. Who am I? The beloved. What am I doing? God's will. How am I doing it? God's way. Jesus was tempted and found his way through to the other side by claiming his place in the story of God. He knew himself to be the beloved, 
so he had nothing to prove. He was committed to doing God's will, not his own, no shortcuts, no, no cut corners. And ultimately, he chose to do God's will, God's way, no matter the cost, even when it included a cross, because he trusted God to be present among God's people. Now, for us, the temptations are going to keep coming. As predictable as the evening tide, temptation will continue to crash against us. We will be continually lured by excess to quell the fears of our our mortality. We are going to be tempted to seek affirmation and love in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways to assure ourselves that we are lovable. We are going to be tempted to control and assert autonomy to secure our future, the ends justifying the means. But there is a way through. And it is not found in honing your willpower. It is found in claiming your place in the story of God as God's child. Invited into God's saving action. It is found in acting out this story by rejecting the false and the empty and the hollow. All the things that we use to numb the fear instead of embracing the true and the good and the holy. It is found in that holy act of remembrance. Do you remember how God acted before? Remember how God acted for Israel? Remember how God acted for Jesus? Do you remember how God acted for the early church? Do you remember how God acted? How God delivered? Do you remember how God saved? Do you remember how God suffered so closely alongside us? How near the Spirit was to us in our sorrow? Do you remember? Remember? Who are we, church? We are the beloved. We have nothing to prove. And what are we doing? God's will. Rejecting power and autonomy and our own agenda. And instead, we are partnering with God to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And how are we going to do God's will? God's way with humility and in obedience and in trust, claiming to the promise that God is indeed among us. So this Lenten season, come out into the wilderness, beloved. Let us follow our Savior's lead and encounter God's transforming, refining work. All you need is nothing. Do you have it? Father God, we thank you for the gift of this, this scripture today. The reminder that we serve a God who has walked in our shoes, who knows what it is to be tempted, to be afraid and insecure and fearful. And yet, Lord, you have shown us by claiming our place in your story, by trusting in your character, in rooting ourselves in your belovedness, there is a way through temptation. So, Lord, would you help us to place ourselves squarely in your story, to claim our place as your children, to trust that your way is in fact the best way. And may we not buy into the stories, the false stories around us that call us to to power and success and control and all of those things. But Lord, may we surrender those things at the foot of your cross and walk the Jesus way with you. Lord, we love you and we trust you. Would you help us to live like it? In Jesus' name, by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.
and amen. You, let's stand in order to receive the benediction this morning. <sighs> beloved, Christ Church, you are the beloved, called to do God's will, God's way. Now go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen. And amen.